lot of it's on us, in my opinion. We have to get really good at doing this, which means that we ask for feedback and make sure that it's a conversation, not one way. And I think that those conversations happening in different places at different times um, with different people can contribute to raising the amount of health literacy among all of us. And I think it's really, really important. What are the local and global implications of nurses embracing the many opportunities available to them in the arena of public health? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Jan Carney, Associate Dean for Public Health and Health Policy and Professor of Medicine at the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont, right here in episode 443 of the Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you, your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the larger picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, medicine, nursing, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or even Amazon or Spotify, or just share the show with anyone for whom you think it would be entertaining, informative, or educational. And you can share that from any app where you happen to be listening. And if you'd like to become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. You can pledge as little as $2 a month to help keep the show going. The show notes will be at NurseKeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening. And like I said, at the top of the hour, we are speaking with Dr. Jan Carney, Associate Dean for Public Health and Health Policy, and also a professor of medicine at the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. And Dr. Carney, I'm really curious, what has captured your imagination over the course of the years about public health? Why is it so meaningful and significant? And what is your passion? Where does it come from? Uh, it come it it comes from it comes from first sort of well my roots are in healthcare and you start very simply is you want to help people mm-hmm. and in public health there's a possibility to help lots of people entire populations and if we if we are able to create partnerships apply the science and practice of public health. We can protect or improve people's health in a whole range of areas. Um, I found that it's rewarding. I've also found it's incredibly challenging because because the the issues keep changing and they change day to day, uh, month by month, year by year. If you look at just the, our recent past, we had a global pandemic mm-hmm. and. We are still, we're talking about vaccines, new, uh, we're not calling them boosters. We're talking about new vaccines for going forward as we're entering uh, our next flu season. We're talking about mental health challenges, both in children and adults related to 
what had to happen and some of the social isolation related to the pandemic. We're talking about enduring problems such as the fact that not everyone has access to healthcare in our country. Mm-hmm. And compared to global societies, um, we're not doing as well. And many of the social factors are very challenging for people now, food security, uh, housing, and others. So the issues are always changing, and there's always something new that we can do to help. And we also have to keep learning in order to do that and perhaps create partnerships with new people and new communities. Well said. And I've been a public health nurse uh, several times throughout my career. In 2008, 2009, I was the public health nurse for the town of Amherst, Massachusetts, not that far from you, really. Mm -hmm. And it was during the H1N1 crisis, which didn't turn into a crisis like COVID-19 did, but still it was, it was a wake up call for many people in the public health arena around communicating with the public. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many fascinating areas that, that it elucidated at the time. And when a lot of us, even healthcare professionals think about public health, you know, we think about vaccinations and we think about, you know, the public health office downtown, but public health is a lot bigger than that. And you already mentioned several things like food security and people are even starting to talk about climate change as a public health issue. Is there anything in our society out there that affects people's health that is outside the realm of public health? Let me ask you that. No, I don't mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. And, and in the broadest definition that is used as Institute of Medicine back in the late eighties, they were looking at some of the things that we're talking about now in terms of the government's response in public health. And Mm -hmm. so they looked at and made recommendations, but they, they talked about public health as what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions in which people can be healthy. That's huge, right? And that includes healthcare and way beyond all the factors that influence our health. Those habits and behaviors, whether that's addiction or the positive behaviors, being physically active, for example, that can contribute to higher quality of and a longer life, for example, it includes the environment, both the factors that are um, create toxins, for example, and air or water and the climate change is, is the largest of them right now. But it also mm-hmm. includes the environment as a way to promote good health. Think about communities that you've been to that have bike paths or walking paths that you can't miss them. They're right there that make it easy for you to do something. Um, so all of these things and the, the social social and economic factors, whether people have a job and, and they can earn enough in that job to support themselves or their family, mm-hmm. um, whether they have a, a place to, to live and, and enough food. And I think one of the things that that's really struck me in the past few years has been the importance of social our social connections. And 
that we used to think about that and that a lot of the, the the literature that you read was around older populations and that's certainly true but it it's important for us across the board we we're we're all we're human beings and we need those social connections and that's part of uh, our overall health as well mm-hmm. and and you're a, a medical doctor and when you received your md what did you first do when you entered the world of medicine and healthcare? Where did you first go? And was it was it connected to public health or was it something completely separate, a different part of the healthcare system? I, I was I'm I'm trained in internal medicine physician, and then I became also formally trained and board certified in preventive medicine and public health. So initially I was seeing patients one at a time. And and that's what and that's what we're trained to do. And we think about the environment, but it's not as prominent part of, of, of the day-to-day practice. And then then I went to first a conference and I went, oh, what what is all this public health? That and we didn't get that in the medical curriculum other than epidemiology, a little bit of epidemiology. And so I went to a conference and ultimately went back to to get my MPH. And it was that education for me that was the aha moment because I learned that there was an entire science and practice of how to prevent disease and illness and improve risk factors and how to um, do that for groups of people, entire populations, communities, states, countries, and beyond. And I just marveled at that. And that, that, I said, hmm, I, that's something I want to figure out how I can get involved with that. So when I went, came back home um, from, I went to public health school, Boston, and I came back home and I, I looked for a full-time job that would allow me to do that. And I first became the deputy health commissioner and then the commissioner of health. And I did that for um, three Vermont governors and, and, almost 14 years and had the opportunity to do that for the entire state. And Mm. um, I just loved it. That's wonderful. And, and now as the associate Dean for public health and health policy and a professor of medicine at the Larner college of medicine, and that's at UVM, um, you have the opportunity. Well, you just mentioned how, public health, you can impact a whole population rather than one-on-one with a patient. And one-on-one, I mean, that's where, you know, the rubber hits the road with medical practice and a lot of good happens there. And of course we need that, but we really need to pull the, pull the camera back and take that bird's eye view. And we need people like you to do that. But in your role of professor of medicine and associate dean for public health and policy, do you feel like there's any movement within medical education? Are there more and more up-and-coming physicians who are looking at public health and kind of getting excited about public health at this point in history? Yeah. I, th- I Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mm-hmm. think it's totally, the world has totally changed. Hmm. And I teach a lot of medical students, and we talk about, we talk about 
communities and improving the health of communities and the, and the humanity in order to start to do that work. Um, we talk about the health system and it used to be people had solo practices or small groups of doctors and nurses in practices and communities. And now we have these big health systems and they really are designed to serve big populations, broader populations. So it's complicated. It's also an opportunity to apply the kinds of things you learn in public health school in a clinical setting. So they complement. It's not an either or. It really, for, for Im improvements in health, um, it's a team sport here. It's, mm -hmm. it, must be, it must be both. And so that's kind of my message. And we actually have quite a bit in our curriculum and our students coming in, they are so environmentally conscious, socially conscious, they wanna do the best by their patients individually and as a whole. And to me, that's exactly it. So I'm really, I'm really delighted at the direction that we're going. And I don't think that's that's restricted in healthcare. That's certainly not restricted to physicians, because as you know, healthcare is a is is provided by teams. Mm -hmm. It's it's not just one person. It, it's delivered in the moment, perhaps by a single individual, but it's really based on healthcare teams. And so. I, I like that direction in terms of public health. Well, I'm glad you're seeing the interest and you're seeing students who have that social consciousness, who, who really want to look at things with that, that bird's eye view. And they really want to look at population-based health because that's, I just feel like there's so many exciting things happening in that arena. And the pandemic woke a lot of people up to the importance of public health. So hopefully, you know, it becomes something more and more attractive. And one of the questions I have for you is that, you know, when nurses go through nursing school, you always have a large proportion of people who want to get into the sexy stuff, like, you know, emergency department and trauma and ICU, you know, that that's like, that's the, the, the grail for so many nursing students, you know, and, and it's the odd ones like me who want to like go work in a federally qualified health center. Mm -hmm. So in medical education, I know it's expensive and medical students accrue a lot of debt. So of course there are certain specialties that pay a lot more than other specialties. And I'm making a humongous assumption here that public health probably doesn't pay as well for a physician who's interested in it as someone who's going to go into surgical services or, you know, neurological services. So how do you attract medical students and new physicians to be, to, to realize they can actually create a career in public health? And is it viable for them to work in public health right out of school? Can they do it even just financially? I'm, I think I'm thinking about it a little differently. Okay. So I think more about, I think about the education and what you learn when you're formally trained in public health. It's not, you know, people, well, just about everybody knows what an epidemiologist does now, mm -hmm. right? And you, you really couldn't miss that. And so 
And so if you think about what do you learn if you get if you get a master's degree in public health, as an example, you learn epidemiology and you learn biostatistics, you learn the math. And if you think of, let me come back to that. You learn about social and behavioral foundations of public health. It's really hard. You know, you talk with patients one-on-one about, well, you should exercise more or quit smoking, those kinds of things. You can, in public health strategies, and that evidence in the science says, hmm, maybe we really need to, that medicine around tobacco could come about through a variety of different organizations and public messaging to reinforce that important work in a healthcare setting. Or we could design our communities or neighborhoods differently so that people are able to walk more and drive less or use a combination of public transportation and things that might be good for a variety of things. So so the the habits and be the social and behavioral factors, students learn about the environment and both the the toxins, the air, the water, the soil, lead poisoning, climate change. And then they learn about the health system and learn about our health system um, and the complexity of that and and has it, how that compares to healthcare delivery in other places, which is which is really pretty revealing. So you put all that together and you say, I think about it more if we have if we have a physician who is in internal medicine or family medicine or pediatrics, that comes as a pretty natural conversation, all those different factors that I talked about. If you're in, if you're a cardiologist, maybe your research using some of those math skills, you might get at some of the prevention side, for example, or even clinical continuous quality improvement kinds of things that you would do in a healthcare setting or be able to look at your health system data and do research related to that. So I think about it more like broadening the conversation and the culture Hmm. around the principles and practice that you learn in public health training to a variety of different, could be medical specialties. Um, And I, I really think nurses are part of that conversation also because of the different opportunities uh, that are available today. Hmm. So you're saying that a physician who's working in cardiology or internal medicine or family practice can take public health, the public health lens and kind of put it on and wear it all the time and integrate it into their practice and maybe maybe advocate for policy at the legislative level if they like, you know, on their off hours or however they want to integrate public health. I was thinking more about, you know, like the the medical director of the tuberculosis program in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. He works mm-hmm. at the VA down in Albuquerque and he also directs our TB program. So he kind of has mm-hmm. a dual role. He sees patients there and then he directs the TB program and then sees some patients within TB. So he kind of straddles these two worlds, which is very interesting. So are, are a lot of MD, MDs or, or medical students pursuing, is there opportunity to pursue a dual degree? Can you get an MD and an MPH at the same time? Or do people 
kind of do one and then kind of tackle the other one separately? Because it sounds like that would be a lot. I, I think there's a there's a mix. There are, and you can have programs um, for a dual MD MPH, and you must complete the requirements for both. It does right. take longer, and if you're a student paying tuition, of course you're going to have the cost of both degrees. So that's definitely how some people do that. Um, some students come to medical school now with their MPH. And I have students who have come through our MPH program and now they're in medical school. We have students here who have stepped out uh, between the third and fourth year to get their MPH. Some talk about it or ask about it later. And it really, it really depends on sort of what your vision is for your own personal career. And then, and then depending on what you see yourself doing and how engaging with your own community or, or doing research in that area. So, so there's a lot of different possibilities, um, uh -huh. in my opinion. Yeah. And, and, you know, as much as the COVID-19 pandemic has been, you know, a great trial on a global scale and continues to be one, though, you know, we've gotten to the other side to a certain extent. Part of me sees also the blessings in it in terms of how it's woken people up to epidemiology and the importance of mass vaccination programs and how we actually logistically make them happen. So do, do you see that too, how the pandemic has kind of supercharged certain people and groups around just awareness that public health is as important as as we know it to be. I I think that first the the pandemic there were there were so many there were so many challenges and and people died and they were sick and people have long COVID and and mm. horrible things happened to families. Um, and we in in my mind it really highlighted the fact that we don't have healthcare for everyone. We saw those intense shortages. We saw the impacts of longstanding discrimination and racism in certain communities and, and across our country. Um, we saw that we have, we don't have enough public health professionals, people formally trained in public health. We have a shortage that only got worse during the pandemic. And, and we also saw how incredibly hard it is to be truly prepared. And one of the things that people talk about in public health is this cycle of neglect and, and then panic. And so for me, when I talk with my the faculty and students I work with, I I truly believe that that public health has never been more important. And to take advantage, as you say, of that conversation, to make sure that that we we go ahead and we and we strengthen our efforts. And those efforts are yes to to train more people for our public health workforce, but I also think it's to find new and creative ways to collaborate around public health because that's where that's where we make long standing improvements to our health 
system, right? So that so it's partnerships between community not-for-profit organizations that are trying so hard to get food to people, right? Or make housing better and partnering with doctors and nurses and public health professionals in a health department. All those things are so incredibly important. Um, one of the high, one of the bright, couple bright spots I saw was the, the telehealth. And we actually, you know, in a we're I live in a rural state here in Vermont, and and it's there are a lot of challenges in terms of access to health and social services. Those were made even worse during the pandemic. And then people discovered that maybe we could do some of this with telehealth and get access to counseling or substance abuse treatment or primary care for some services. And we did a little a project last year with our uh, year before last with our medical students and both physicians that they surveyed and patients really liked it. So that to me was it's let's let's learn from that because we know how hard it is for not everyone has transportation or or necessarily can get to somebody uh, in their own community when they need to and be creative about about bringing those services to people in a better way. So I I thought that was that was a real bright spot. Those are bright spots. And when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk about your work with the um, Vermont Rural Health Communication Network and the ways in which we need to look at rural health and kind of pay a lot more attention to those populations in places like Vermont and here in New Mexico, for instance, and some other things about your career and your views on public health. So hang in there with us and we'll be right back with the second half of episode 443 of the Nurse Keith Show with Dr. Jan Carney of the University of Vermont. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Jan Carney of the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. And Dr. Carney, we've been talking about just before the break, the impact of the pandemic and how it opened our eyes to, to so many things. And you were mentioning telehealth right before the break. And you mentioned how Vermont is a very rural state. And I used to live just south of there. So I'm very familiar with your beautiful state. And I live in New Mexico now, which is also incredibly rural. I think we're the fourth least populous state in terms of people per square mile or somewhere. We're in the top five or six. So there's a lot of people out there who we need to find ways to reach them. Here we use school-based clinics. That's one of the ways we reach families who have no primary care. And your current work is focusing on the Vermont Rural Health Communication Network, the RHCN. What is that about? And how is Vermont tackling this issue of rural health, which should be a concern to all of us? The we're we're doing a lot of work and we have this we we have a grant called the Northern New England Clinical and Translational Research Network and one of the things we're doing there is to try and the whole goal is to try and and promote research about rural areas and with clinicians who actually work in those practices we have a a group of it's called a practice based research network of 
doctors and nurses who are working in clinical practice trying to to come up with some common questions um we're working looking at this for in terms of cancer prevention and treatment we know that in this area plus many areas of health there are differences or disparities between people who live in rural areas and people who live in less rural areas and urban areas so we know there's lots of different challenges one of the things that has become evident is the one the whole area of getting making sure that people have access to evidence-based scientific and medical health information but they haven't get it in a way that they want to receive it so think about two-way communication and it goes beyond a conversation about whether or not you have internet in rural area mm-hmm. it's more of a, a way of thinking about this think about how do you get health information how do people get it or if they hear it if they get it outside of a healthcare setting they might hear it from on the media you know on tv they might hear it on social media they might hear it from a big government organization during the pandemic it would have been from the cdc or a health mm-hmm. department for example and if you think about that that's a one-way flow of information. So what do we know about, is that how people want to receive the information? And are we providing that scientific and medical and health information in a way that they will, they can use it and they want to receive it? Because we know, unfortunately, there's an awful lot of not such good information out there, misinformation about health and science. And that that can be it can be quite it could be dangerous to people's health we heard some stories about that mm-hmm. but it can also get in the way of people um doing the right things they need to do for their own health and the health of their family and friends and and sometimes their community so here's that here's the here's the here's the concrete example so when we start to ask people and we did some of this in an electronic survey during the pandemic and i did this with the united ways across vermont and we've had a community academic partnership for a long time now and ask people how do are they getting enough of evidence-based scientific and medical information and of course not and then how do they like to receive it and people in the urban areas like to use the internet and um there's there's something called front porch forum which is more of a community social social network and people in our rural communities like their town paper and facebook and word of mouth Hmm, and we went yeah and we said hmm isn't that interesting so so just in terms of if we really want to help people and and this sort of the general term is is kind of improving health literacy and we know that that's really pretty low across the board on average and that's not surprising because all this is it changes a lot right some of it is is technical and complex and most people don't a doctor or nurse on a frequent basis so most of the information they get about health and science is from someplace else so that it's 
it's not surprising to me. So the real question was, can we do better? Think about giving, providing scientific information in a way that people want to receive it. So we're kind of right in the middle of those kinds of pilot tests. And so for in one grant that we're doing that looks at, that's been looking at um, factors that predicted the ability to get a COVID-19 test during the pandemic. And we're doing this in, in Maine and Vermont right now. As part of that, we're, we're trying to do a mini project about this health information in, in rural settings. So we're, we're currently working with an organization that serves older Vermonters. And we are currently, we have been testing um, some information about COVID boosters, and because that's the information they wanted to hear more about, and we developed some materials. And before we did those, when and they used the information from the CDC and our health department, for example. But before we did this, we asked them specifically, how do people in your community, what what kind of information, how do they like to read about science and health? And they told us they wanted it on a one-page flyer. Hmm. And they wanted cartoons and they wanted the font so it was easy to read. So we're kind of in the middle of we developed something with them and we're trying to put that out to our some of our um, senior communities and see if if that becomes an effective approach. And if so, um, we'll try some other topics. But that's the concept. How do we hmm. make this in? How do we take this complex, sometimes very important scientific and health information and provide it to people in a way not that we want to provide it, but they want to receive it? Right. And if we're able to do that, more of a community conversation, I would I would kind of describe it. If we're able to do that, will that help us cut through a lot of this? misinformation that's out there mm -hmm. well said and you know we have to meet people where they are right and mm -hmm. the internet's great i mean there's lots of information out there and it's it, there's plenty of information that we'd rather people not see but you're right we have to reach people the way they want to be reached it's you know you can't force someone to read scientific papers with all this jargon that is going to go over their head and they're going to glaze over very quickly and you lose them. And then once you've lost them, you've lost an opportunity to communicate. So if I'm a nurse or any other health professional and I want to get involved in things like this, like it really fascinates me. And I feel like, yeah, I, I, I love working with rural populations or this sort of, you know, health education that really lights my fire. How do I get involved in this sort of work? Do I, do I need to become a public health nurse or a public health official? Can I, are there ways to get involved on other levels, even volunteering if I'd like to be involved yeah. in work like you're doing in Vermont? I, th I think you can I think you can do any of those and mm -hmm. I think you can volunteer mm -hmm. and what what might that look like 
um, a doctor or nurse who might go to a local school uh, or a volunteer to do that, or even go to the, you know, the parent-teacher organization meeting and talk with them, um, volunteer at a uh, long-term care facility or assisted living facility and ask them, is this something? Would you would you like to have a conversation about whatever that health topic is? And volunteer. And in part in doing that, part of it's on us, in my opinion. We have to get really good at doing this, which means that we ask for feedback and make sure that it's a it's a conversation, um, not one way. And I think that those conversations happening in different places at different times um, with different people can contribute to raising the amount of health literacy among all of us. And I think it's really, really important. Mm -hmm. And and if we want to get involved on the, the advocacy level, if we're interested in how government works and how, whether local, national, state, whatever it happens to be, and we feel like we have something to say, whether we have a master's of public health or not, but we have an opinion and we have observations about maybe a certain patient population who we happen to have a deep understanding of. Have you seen advocacy related to public health having a, a positive impact at the legislative level when people go and talk to the legislators? You know, how how do we integrate our advocacy activities and our interests in public health. Yes, I see that. I see that happen all the time. And tell me, tell that's me about a, that. And, and a couple uh, students are asking me that more and more. Hmm. And, and so our medical residents, sometimes colleagues, and a couple of different ways. The first thing is, yes, you can do something by yourself. You can advocate solo. My suggestion is if you can find a group, it makes it even easier. So, for example, if you, um, we have colleagues who are, who might work in, in healthcare in some way, from cardiology or, or internal medicine or, or nursing, and our students with our heart association here in Vermont. And the Heart Association might have health-related uh, public health priorities for advocacy. And you can be part of that if that, those are areas that, that you're seeing too. It might be for healthier diets, for example, you know, access to healthcare for certain populations. It depends what the issue is. You can join forces there and become part of advocacy for a group or your professional societies for physicians or nurses or public health. Um, health departments often have uh, medical reserve corps pretty much across the country. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't isn't just for physicians, that's for both people trained in healthcare and in different domains of healthcare, as well as people who just want to volunteer. There's tons of ways to get involved. Yeah. I used to be the head of the Medical Reserve Corps in Amherst, Mass. When I was the public health nurse, that was one of my jobs. Yeah. And we yeah. coordinated with the University of Massachusetts because they had 
20 to 25,000 students themselves. And we had about 20,000 residents of the town. So altogether, we had a big population and the university had its own public health nurse. So the medical reserve corps was very important in terms of disaster preparedness. And we, we practiced the logistics of mass vaccination clinics and where we didn't actually end up doing mass vaccinations for H1N1, I think it was likely really good practice for what happened over the last couple of years. So I think, you know, I think expanding the definition of what public health is, like you mentioned um, bike paths, the ability for people to to bike and walk. And I think about the built environment. You know, if I'm in a wheelchair and I can't roll down the sidewalk safely, which you can't do a lot in Santa Fe because it's a 400-year-old city and the infrastructure is not so great. And it's very dangerous for people in wheelchairs. And you often go down little streets where there's no sidewalk. So the built environment is a big deal. You know, farmers markets are a big deal. There's, there's, you know, bicycle helmets. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways you can, you can, lots of lenses through which you can look at public health. So what excites you about the future, like the next 10 to 20 years? What do you, what, if you had your vision and you could sort of create this vision for where public health goes in this post, kind of the post COVID world, where, where would you head? Is there anything else you feel like we need to think about? At least for the immediate future, mm-hmm. the whole topic of improving health literacy is, is just critical. And we see that for, for everything. If people can learn more about their own health and health care and what it takes to stay healthy, or to become more healthy, mm-hmm. I think it'll be more likely that they will engage in whether they need healthcare, being partners in that healthcare, being part of the solutions for how do we make our communities better, right? Mm-hmm. For foundational needs. People, so many places do not have a house to live in or food at the table. Mm-hmm. And if you think about our basic needs, um, you can, you know, I think that that having people understand about health and here in our healthcare environment, the people who are working in that environment, how can they partner with people who are trying so hard to address those social and economic needs that people have, and making those partnerships more seamless? So. Health communication, continuing to expand those conversations because I think that uh, no one group or individual, no one individual group or organization can really do this on their own. And the needs are are very extensive. Mm-hmm. Well, I could talk to you about public health for hours. And, you know, if I was going to go back to school, that's what I would go back to school for because it's it I find it fascinating and you know some people might 
prefer trauma, critical care, all the adrenaline-soaked specialties. But for me, this like population-based health, community-based health, I think is really fascinating. And I think there's so much good work to be done and so much good work being done by people like you. So before we close, I have four quick questions I ask all my guests, and they have nothing to do with anything we've been talking about. Um, Are you game for a little lightning round? I'll go for it. Yeah, okay. They're, They're simple questions, really, in the big picture. The first question is, how do you define success personally or professionally? For me, uh, success is figuring out what you can do to make a difference. Mm. And for me, it's there are the things I can contribute to in any way to make people healthier or communities healthier than they were before. So for me, that would be it. That's really lovely. Okay. Second question. Could you name or describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead. They could be a very famous person or just someone who you've known in the course of your life who just has a special place in your heart. Well, I have to say immediately, it would be my mother. Hmm. And 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 she um She's no longer living, and she has always been my lifelong role model um, because she always saw the best in people. Uh, she was always caring. She was concerned for family, friends, and her community, and she always was optimistic. Hmm. So many guests mention their mothers. There, There's so many amazing mothers out there who you know, really served as role models for so many people. So I'm I'm really glad to hear that. That's really beautiful. Okay. Third penultimate question. Is there a book or a movie out there, not necessarily an absolute favorite, but something that has impacted your life, like the way you think, the way you approach your work, the way you live your life or conduct your relationships, just anything that's sort of important to you? Well, let's see. There's lots been an awful lot of books. I'm trying mm-hmm. to think about anything yeah. recently. This is, these are good. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read recently some books around suffering in the Holocaust mm. and um, Man's Search for Meaning. Victor Frankel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I read that. I was very, and then Ellie Weissel Knight. And I recently oh, yeah. read those again. And I would say that, you know, there is just something enduring, eternal about our need to do something to alleviate human suffering. Mm. And that suffering takes many forms. And it might look different for different people in different professions, but there's something very universal. So I think I was very moved by both of those books. Those are groundbreaking and important books that everyone needs to read. Okay, last question. And I think I know what the tenor of the answer will be already. (laughs) If you were named queen of the world tomorrow, 
and you had ultimate power, what would be one of the first things you'd want to do to improve the lives of your subjects? And remember, you could do everything and anything, but what's one of the first things you would do? I would improve social conditions so that everyone could be healthy or have the opportunity to be healthy. I knew it. I knew somehow, it. I, somehow you knew I was going to say that, right? I nailed it. Yeah. So I, somehow I knew it. Well, Dr. Jan Carney, this has been so lovely. And if anyone is interested in the programs at the University of Vermont, they can go to uvm.edu forward slash public health. And the university is on social media, of course, and they can find you on LinkedIn. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And I can't thank you enough for one, the amazing work you do in the world, educating future public health people with who want to champion public health and physicians. So thank you for doing that. And thanks for being a voice of sanity around the things that are important for us to improve our society and the lives of the people in it. So thank you so much for all the great work you do in the world. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this awesome and inspiring episode of The Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com and on any podcast app where you happen to be listening. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, look no further than nursekeith.com and Nurse Keith Coaching. Mention the show and you can get 10% off your first coaching package. And we are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. It is an amazing and growing array of some of the best health and healthcare related podcasts on the internet. We're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And I thank you all for being here and listening. And before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Amelia Earhart. The most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith Singh. Adios from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the wonderful Dr. Jan Carney, bidding you a Derchi from Burlington, Vermont. Thank you so much, Dr. Carney. Thank you to everyone for listening, and we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side. Thank you.